Unitarian Universalist Hall on Cedar and Bonita. The event is sponsored by Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF, East Bay. There will be a $10 donation that will benefit the Women of Color Resource Center. For more information, www.bfuu or call Annie at 510-501-6439. And this is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Sharon Ott, the director of a new play titled You Nero, written by Amy Freed, which is running through June 28th at Berkeley Rep on Addison Street in Berkeley. Sharon Ott is the former artistic director of Berkeley Rep 1984 to 1997, and she also was at Seattle Repertory Theater, and she is now a professor of performing arts at Savannah College of Art and Design, lives part-time in Georgia and part-time in Seattle. Sharon Ott, this is, uh, I think, the third play you worked on with Amy Freed, is that correct? Yes, it's the third one, the second world premiere and the third play. You worked earlier this year on Crime and Punishment here at Berkeley Rep. Two questions. How did you start with this play? And also the other question is, Berkeley Rep, what brings you back finally after several years to working at Berkeley Rep? The play began, of course, with Amy, who wrote it. When we were doing Restoration Comedy, which was the other world premiere I did with her, we premiered that at Seattle Rep and then came to Cal Shakes with it. I think three years ago in the summer. And Danny Shea played the fop role in Restoration Comedy. And it was during that run that Amy decided she would really love to write a play for Danny. At that time, she didn't know what. Previously, I had directed Amy's play, The Beard of Avon, which in the Bay Area was produced at ACT, up at Seattle Rep. And the actress who played Queen Elizabeth in that production, Lori Larson, had also done uh, Amy's play, Sexual Life of the Savage. And Amy got it in her mind that she wanted to write a comedy about Nero and his mother, specifically thinking of Danny Shea and Laurie Larson. And she asked me if, if I'd be interested in working with her. And I said, sure. You couldn't quite imagine what a comedy about Nero and his mother would turn out to be. But I love working with Amy. So said, sure. And she had had an outstanding commission at South Coast Repertory where Beard of Avon premiered, Freedom Land premiered, uh, and they got wind of this project and said, you know, we'd like to produce the first production of it. And then Amy and I were down at South Coast. We did a reading of it, and then we first did a public reading of it in their Pacific Playwrights Festival, which they do every May, two years ago. And then after that public reading, South Coast committed to the production, the world premiere production. And somewhere after that, Amy Petoskin, who's the casting director here at Berkeley Rep, read the script and suggested it to Tony. So he came on board as a co-producer for the world premiere. And Crime and Punishment, was that a completely separate? Completely separate. That one was one where I learned of that 
translation slash adaptation, saw it in New York, and I know Kurt Columbus, who did it. And I proposed that to Tony previously to You Nero. It was even before, I think, You Nero was done in its first workshop. So it just turns out they were the same year, quite by chance, with no design, you know, that I'd be back twice in one year. An interesting aspect of Yes, Nero that I'd like you to talk about is that that original reading was reviewed in the New York Times. Uh, Amy didn't expect any kind of review at that point. I understand she wasn't all that happy about it, even though it was a good review. I don't think anybody expected Mr. Isherwood to review a reading. That generally doesn't happen. And he was actually there to review the two premier productions that were on the boards, which he did in the course of reviewing You Nero. I think we were all startled by it. I mean, it was a very favorable review, extremely favorable. I mean, you know, everybody likes to hear good things, but it was startling and it, it, uh, perhaps uh, got us off to a, a strange footing because that was, you know, once it was there, it was there, and we had to live up to it. I'm not sure we did on the first iteration at South Coast. It's a very complex play, complex kind of comedy. It's a complex world, lots of things you have to make work. You know, like many new plays, not all of them were working at South Coast, but it's been great to have this opportunity to look at it again, look at it with some new cast members, look at it in a very different space. Berkeley Rep space is very different from South Coast's. I was talking afterward with several people to get a sense of what the audience was thinking. And at one point I said, it strikes me in a way as an artifact of the Bush administration. And a couple of the people looked at me and said, oh, this is a political play, followed by, oh, it's a political play. Which brings up a question about whether the change in politics changes the way one looks at a play that's written during a different time. And I think two or three years ago is a very different time. First of all, Amy does almost always have a political component to her writing. She has a subversive sense, I think. I would say that, yes, most definitely this play has not political in the sense of attempting to comment on specific political uh, realities, such as the Bush administration. Now, her play previous to this, Safe in Hell, which I did not direct. But that one was a very direct comment on the Bush years. This one, I don't take it that way. And I, I take it as a, a comment on, on the nature of the way our society possibly deals with the arts in general, with humanist thinking in general. That's not necessarily tied to any current political reality. It's more of a, a socio-political reality. And I do think that that is in the play. Uh, it's dealt with in a very comic sense, and it's buried deep within the story of the Emperor Nero from long ago. She's not didactic about it. So I think the play, you know, works on a level, if you choose to look at it, you can really find something deep and quite angry and sad about the nature of the arts. But you can also look at it and not see any of that and just see it as a romp and fun. I think she has a little bit of a Shakespearean sense in that regard. She can play to different segments of the audience depending on who they are and how they want to view the event. Let me put it in a slightly different context for you as the director. Knowing two years ago, let's say, that the Bush administration was in power and that it can be read as a political statement. And at that point, there were a lot of artistic political statements. And then you come up on it again for January down south and then now here. 
Does that change how you view the play in terms of directing, or do you just put that out of your mind? For this play, I don't think it's uh, part of the equation. Certainly, if I were directing a play that had a more direct political perspective, say Stuff Happens, I don't know if you know David Hare's play, Stuff Happens, which is specifically about Powell and Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. That play's hard to do right now because the event is quite in the past. This play, I don't think the event of the play, which really is a critique of the way our culture is perhaps through popularizing the art and through allowing art to be seen as entertainment or entertainment to be seen as art. Witness all sorts of things, not just American Idol, which is sort of the first thing one might think, but Cirque du Soleil, anything you could think of where spectacle and the, the sort of gratification of the ego takes over, survivor, takes over for metaphor, language, thought. That is still going on. That wasn't just the Bush administration. It's been a slow and gradual move that way, all the way from probably somewhere in the 1940s when it started to happen. And as technology has changed our universe as entertainers. So that, which is, I think, the political reality of the play, isn't so specifically tied to, you know, one political administration or another. It's more a kind of sociopolitical zeitgeist that she's, in a way, railing against and warning that that's potentially could be seen as part of a civilization in decline. The end of the play is quite different here than it was at South Coast. Hopefully we've landed more the sense, the mournful sense of this great civilization that was Rome, that part of the decline, you know, could be attributed to some of the things that Nero put forward. Certainly not all of the decline, but part of it. And that there's a resemblance between that part of the decline of Roman civilization and our own. And that's what we're trying to get the audience to at least think about. Sharon Ott, how do you approach uh, a drama adaptation like Crime and Punishment versus a play like you, Nero, is is it a similar approach or very different when you're going in? Very different. Uh, in in many ways, more because in you, Nero, I have the writer right beside me. Do you know? So there's there's this comment that I always remember. Declan Donnellan, who's a very wonderful British director, he directed Angels in America in London. Kushner, I believe. The London production was actually before the Broadway production, so Tony Kushner was around and present, and Declan Donnellan made a famous comment at one point where he said, I know now why I only work with dead playwrights. Sometimes it's it's wonderful and thrilling with the live person there, but boy, it could also be a tug of war sometimes. Uh, Amy and I get along great. I don't mean to infer that we don't. But uh, mostly with Crime and Punishment, I was dealing with an absent adapter, Kurt Columbus, because many people have done this adaptation, and a dead writer, Dostoevsky. So it's a very different thing in the room with the actors uh, in that case than it is with a play that's still being born, where the playwright is uh, as present every moment as I am and should be. You know, it's always fun to deal with adapted material, particularly something like Crime and Punishment, where you can get lost again in the beauty of the novel, as well as the many, many iterations of people adapting it for film and, you know, literature, etc. You can really spend almost an infinite amount of time in research. Uh, Of course, you could spend a lot of time researching Nero and Rome as well. 
Uh, yeah, but that's also more, I think, the the playwright than the director, right? Oh, no. No, no. I have to do as I did as much research as Amy. I mean, I, I had her reading list because we have to come up with the world and, you know, I have to know for the actors how much of this stuff is really true, which is in the play, almost all of it. There's nothing really fictionalized. Uh, and, you know, it gives you a good chance to watch Rome the miniseries. And <laughs> a lot of the funny lines are contemporary pieces that are just thrown out. Did you have any problem with that? Was something that you encouraged? How did that relate to it? Because it comes in at odd times, and each time, of course, it gets a big laugh. And I'm thinking, at the one hand, I'm laughing. At the other hand, I'm thinking, is this a great idea? I don't know how much you know her other plays, but that's really something Amy does in all of her work, from Beard of Avon through Restoration Comedy. She's always bouncing old material off a new reality. So it's not even a question of whether I have anything to say. That is her style. We certainly, and she's very conscious of, for instance, cheap laughs. We're desperately trying. It may appear sometimes like the laughs are cheap, but actually all the conversation in the rehearsal hall is about the seriousness of the issue at hand. She writes in the program about the Agrippina ghost speech, where she's using a classical Senecan ghost form, and then she throws in, you know, she sweeps past the naked German bathers on the shore. That's a typical Amy kind of writing, where she'll be right in the classical form and then throw a very funny kind of contemporary line into the mix. As well as reading about these characters, we looked a lot at the old, like Quo Vadis and, you know, the sort of 50s sandals epics, uh, because part of the acting style, those actors were very, very committed. I mean, if you look at those old Bible epics, look at Charlton Heston and Ben-Hur, it's this earnest, earnest style of acting. So a lot of what we had to do was figure out what that mindset was that could be so earnest uh, and try to play it that way because then you can the laughs sort of spin off that. If you get silly in the playing style, it just gets all stupid, if, if that makes any sense. So there's sort of a very serious intent behind most of it. Sharon Ott, when it's written for an actor like Danny Shea, what kind of role does he play in the creation, in the dialogue, or, or even in the blocking? Uh, a huge role. I've never heard another actor read this, so I have nothing changing Danny's voice in my ear. Amy heard one other actor read the role, so she has a slightly different ear to it. But, you know, it was written for the cadence of his voice. It was written for his own very particular kind of vaudevillian humor. Danny has a very particular humorous attack on things uh and he's a very bright guy i mean he has his phd from cal berkeley so he was helpful in every single aspect of it how to find the right comic tone for the other actors how to find the correct uh delivery of the what you would call the anachronistic you know the things that ping out as anachronistic versus the deadly serious i mean nero was a, a serious murdering maniac and danny was helpful in finding a way to to play, I mean, I think he's genuinely scary often, but always funny, you know, and that's a trick. That's very difficult to pull that off. You're listening to an interview with Sharon Ott, director of You Nero, playing at Berkeley Rep through June 28th. Okay, the play is ready. It's gone through a couple of tech rehearsals. The first opening happens. 
before a preview audience, you're very lucky in that from the audience perspective, the tech works. That must have been a really wonderful feeling for you. It's a huge relief. <laughs> I mean, particularly after, I don't know if you heard the story, but our premiere down at South Coast Rep, their theater has a very touchy smoke alarm system. So our first preview, when we started to burn Rome, the, the whole building's smoke alarms went off. And, you know, given the, the fact that there are anachronisms all over the play, for a moment, the audience and myself thought, oh, this is part of the event because, you know, that voice, the, the horn was coming on and evacuate the theater was happening. Uh, but we didn't finish the preview because everybody had to go outside and we had to clear the smoke off. And so our first uh, preview there was a bit of a disaster. <laughs> so it was great to uh, A, get through the whole burning of Rome without any smoke alarms going off and just have everything. It's a big show, as you can see, teching go, go well. So now we can put our focus to we're making some cuts. We're changing some things. Amy's sense is enough of a vaudevillian sense that at least the last quarter amount of work you have to do has to do with how to play the audience. Uh, amongst everything else that she's doing, she's writing like an old vaudevillian. So until your audience is there, you don't really know some of the things. Are they there or not until you get the response? When I talked to Carrie Perloff not long ago, I asked her a question. I said, you know, is it sometimes better for an audience to wait until midway through a run to see the play just in case it takes extra time to get together. What do you think of that? I think that's more true on a comedy or a musical than it is on a play, say, like Crime and Punishment. I do believe that the actors deepen. I'm sure that the actor playing Raskolnikov deepened his performance. But a production like that isn't as dependent on the audience. A production like You, Nero is more dependent on the interplay. The audience is almost another character and literally became another character when they were chanting Nero, Nero. So in a play like this, I think it's only going to grow as the actors get more and more confident with how to partner with the audience. Did you expect the audience to respond with no. Nero? No, that was a great surprise. We were thrilled. <laughs> we were afraid somebody was going to come up on the stage when he said, does anyone have an act to share? <laughs> I bet in Berkeley, one performance, somebody will. We're laying a wager. <laughs> well, when you, when you break that fourth wall, you never know what's going to happen. You never know. <laughs> this is a very free audience here, and the space, I love the Berkeley rest thrust stage, and it really invites the audience to participate in that kind of visceral way. You're one of the people responsible for the Rota, the second stage. When you were thinking of creating a more traditional stage, was that because you felt certain plays should have that space? Yes, that was one of the thoughts. The other one was that the thrust really is limited in terms of the number of seats in it. And we didn't want to make it bigger because it's perfect the way it is. So uh, at least when I was here, and, and I'm sure it's continued through Tony's time, there were just shows that we needed bigger houses for to accommodate the audience. And also uh, a lot of the Berkeley Rep shows, starting with, my time here and continuing on through Tony and with Less Waters, transfer to other theaters. The thrust is so idiosyncratic. Things built for that stage don't easily transfer to other theaters, which often are prosceniums. So both of those things went in. I've never worked at the Rota, so I'd love to do a play on that stage. Sure or not, you talk about going elsewhere. Uh, what's happened in the past couple of years at Berkeley Rep is extraordinary. Uh, several plays 
have moved directly to Broadway or indirectly to Broadway to a point where rather than just being a regional theater, it's almost become a tryout stage. When you bring these two plays here, is that ever in your mind? Sure, that's always in anybody's mind, only because it's the main marketplace for the arts. It has been for a while and it remains that way. Many of Amy's plays have gone on to New York productions, and it's certainly in her mind, I'm sure. I would be disingenuous to tell you that I don't think about New York. Of course I do. Every theater artist does. But that's not why I'm doing the play. You know, I'm doing the play because I enjoy Amy's writing. I really think she's an original talent, and we have a great collaboration. So it would be great for her to get her play further than Berkeley. It would be great for Danny Shea to have his miraculous talent celebrated more outside the Bay Area. And, of course, it would be great for everybody else, too, but that's not that's not the primary thing in our mind. And I think... You know, I don't think it's happened here, but I think it can sometimes happen at regional theaters where once that reality happens, where you have a play or two that go on, quote, or seven or seven, <laughs> that the focus becomes that. And that is wrong when that happens, because the focus is really and should be what is our audience here? You know, the theater is here in Berkeley, and the audience that we've been cultivating for many, many years is the audience here. So we do the work first for the people here and for the artists here. And if it has a future life, that's wonderful. But it's not, and it should never be the thing. I think theaters get in trouble when they start to think about, oh, we need, you know, X play to transfer, or, oh, we need to have... Uh, a musical. I know like La Jolla Playhouse down south when Des Mackinoff was transferring all those musicals. It became a thing where they absolutely needed a musical in their season or else everybody felt they weren't doing their job. That's where it can start to get negative because, no, you don't need a musical in your season if you can't find a good one. You know, you need to do good work and good work ultimately will find its own path to a future life. And I think that's what's happened here. It didn't start out with, oh, we need to get to New York. It started out with, let's do the best work we can do. And eventually people started to notice. I mean, it was starting with me and continued, start to notice that work. I also think that if you get too carried away, then you move away from a more classical repertoire, a mixture of classical and new plays, almost toward new plays, which once they've gone through development, are more likely to go to Broadway than, say, a revival with the same cast. Absolutely, yeah, and especially in Berkeley, where the classical repertoire is important to the audience. You can't forget about that, but it's true. It's very hard. It would be great if that weren't the case, if if a great production of, you know, of Coriolanus could be done at Berkeley Rep and would have an equal chance to move to Broadway as Green Day. That's not likely to happen in the in the near future which is a shame because the the theater has done fantastic productions of classical work as well sure not you were artistic director here for 13 years you were artistic director in Seattle repertory company before Berkeley Rep you were artistic director two different companies in Milwaukee now you're a professor do you miss being an artistic director not in these times, let me tell you. Again, I, I loved being an artistic director, but I did it when I left Seattle. I'd done it for 22 years. Uh, and then before that, with my small company in Milwaukee, that was another six years. So it was time to change and try something else. Uh, and I have to say, the last 
three years have been so extremely difficult in the regional theater in particular that I certainly felt in many ways <laughs> I made the move just in time, you know, because I think it's it's a very tough job to have right now with the economic realities that most artistic directors are staring at with their partners, the managing directors. So I'm blessed to be able to, you know, be thinking instead about what acting books I'm reading and how what sort of uh, knowledge I want to impart to the next generation and not be looking at balance sheets and meeting with finance committees. There's part of being an artistic director that I most certainly miss. It's mostly the bringing together of all the various talents uh, and producing seasons. I miss that. I always thought I was good at that, and I love doing it. One of your classmates back at Cal Arts, Julie Taymor, did you figure she would go on to the kind of career she did? No. Julie and Bill Irwin and I, we were all in that company together, and I don't think any of us would have figured <laughs> the kind of careers that we had. It's fun to think about that. You know, it's fun to, I'm in the Julie Tamer born book in one of her, her first costume. There's a picture of me bent over. You wouldn't know it was me, but, you know, it was fun to see Julie. That was her very first kind of foray into visual theater were the costumes that she did for our production of the Oristaya. None of us could move at all. And I know I know that several actors who have been in the Lion King and they said, Well that never changed <laughs> What what about viewing her uh works like Titus or Across the Universe? Uh, you know, I, I love Julie's work. I always, when she was in the company with me, I always thought she had a very, very unique and original mind, as did Bill. And, you know, we worked in that company with Herb Blau, who was, of course, in San Francisco for many years at the Actors Workshop. And Herbert really, I don't think we, when we get together now, we all say, well, I don't think he really taught us anything about acting. But he did teach us a lot about how to be a full artistic person. And that was what each of us took then into very different paths. But you could feel that development in his company. We weren't getting better at all as actors, but we were all developing who we were going to be as uh, full artistic people. It's kind of interesting, and maybe this is coincidence and maybe of your own ideas. A number of shows closed on Broadway in January, and nobody knew what to expect, a downturn in the economy, empty theaters, and instead what we've seen this spring has been an extraordinary number of good plays with great reviewed plays. I haven't seen them because I've been in New York since then. Great reviewed plays, interesting work going on in New York, almost a theatrical renaissance. Is this just coincidence that it's happening at the start of a new administration? Is there something else going on? I don't know. I was reading Tony's introduction in our program for You, Nero, and he talks there just about the extraordinary strength of American playwriting right now. And I, I would agree with that. I do think that there's a, a real... I don't know whether you call it renaissance or just a kind of outpouring of ideas and emotion and thought. And that may have something to do with both uh, the, the good things that are going on culturally for us right now and the difficult times that we're in, that both may be really propelling people to look more deeply, examine more deeply, think more fully. Uh, and it may be that uh, audiences are more... Uh, interested in the kind of public discussion of ideas that theater represents, we could only hope. I mean, I do know that a lot of theaters have had trouble with tickets uh, because of the economy, 
When I'm here and looking at the shows at Berkeley Rep, I'm certainly not feeling that. I feel the audience is completely with us and buzzing and very, very excited. This is something I've, I've been thinking about in terms of books and in terms of theater and in terms of film. The Bush administration took away so much, and yet, at the same time, it forced people to come around the back door to change people's minds, to make people think. You come in through the arts, through theater, through books, through film. We can hope that people will use the art as the portal to uh, deeper thinking about the world. That's why I do theater, because I do believe humanity has has the need to think of the arts in that way. I hate to lay everything on George Bush's you know, doorstep, but I do think that that administration was a particular damper on ideas and whether it's artistic ideas or scientific ideas or any kind of ideas and that we've blown the lid off that so to speak with the change and that you are seeing now the freedom of people who it wasn't direct censorship but the feeling of a kind of dullness where everybody's just eager to talk about the issues you nero is playing at berkeley rep through june 28th you've been listening to an interview with sharon ott who's the director of you nero and former artistic director of berkeley rep i'm richard walensky on open book Fun Festival, a whole day of free fun for the whole family in Civic Center Park. We'll be next to the Berkeley Farmers Market on Saturday, June 6th. There'll be hands-on activities and performances, including Ashiba, playing music for kids Caribbean style. That's what you hear in the background. There'll be music by Orange Sherbet, hip-hop and ethnic dancers, a free bouncy house, courtesy of the downtown Berkeley YMCA, baby goats, and much more. It's 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., Center Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Way, phone 510-548-3333. Again, that's 510-548-3333. Or go to www.ecologycenter.org. Again, that's www.ecologycenter.org. The Berkeley Farmers Markets are an ongoing benefit for the ecology.